0: If there's any question about you being in the right place, that announcement on the change of the convention location ought to set you straight. <laughs> Don't be worried anymore.
1: <coughs>
0: I want to thank you, Marvin. Uh, the time that Marvin was talking about, the time he remembers me, I was a blonde. Uh, <laughs> and he was a lot prettier. I'd like to uh, thank Clara and, and Carl for being so kind as to pick us up at the airport, and I understand that they're going to take us back this evening. We certainly appreciate that, too. I want to thank you all, of course, but especially those people. The, uh, the thing is that when you this particular time and all, uh, especially on a Sunday morning, because uh, we've had a, a good weekend and all, and everybody's up and all that sort of thing, you know, and where some of us probably won't see each other for another year or so, maybe longer than that for a lot of us. But when I look out over this vast crowd and and think of this enjoyable weekend, this time that you and I have spent together, and I realize all the tragedy that's represented here, i got to believe that God ain't too mad at us. Really. i got to really believe that he ain't just too mad at us. So... Alverna usually makes up some notes for me that uh, for me to follow. And one of them is remember, no profanity and no evangelizing. I'll violate both of those, I guarantee you. The other one is. To thank the committee or the chairman for having asked you to come. And I certainly do want to thank all of you, the entire committee, and especially you two for being so helpful. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I, I do appreciate it. And the third one is your name's Bill Oakley, and you're an alcoholic. And my sobriety dates July 70, and that by the grace of God and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a far cry from that place I came. To hear, I'm like Francine last night. The dots just don't connect. You know, there's no way you could get to this place from whence I came. I was talking to Buck last night and telling him about some new experience in my life, something that I would have guaranteed you would have never have happened a few years ago. Well, quite a few years ago now. But Alverna and I had to, to to attend a funeral of a very dear friend, and I cried. And all of those around me cried, too. You said, well, that's not unusual. It was for me because, you see, I'm a redneck, and the man in that casket was a black man. And I noticed everybody else there cried, too. What a powerhouse he was, and what a contribution he made to recovering alcoholics and especially to AA. I remember the day he came in when he had life on backwards and how he changed it all around. And there he was laid out before us and, and how powerful it was. So that was a new experience for me and one I would have assured you that would not have happened to me a few years ago. I've been warned by both Lee and Bob over here in the tape section that I'll have to tell the truth even though I'm a great distance from home. (laughs) uh, That's the trouble. uh, Lee could probably tell my story. And, uh, of course, I got to, incidentally, stand up, Al and say hello to the ladies and men. And I would like to say this, too. I I would like to address the Al-Anons for just a second, if I might, because uh, they're some of my favorite people. i tell you, I don't really believe there would be an AA. I really sincerely feel this way, that there would not be an AA if there wasn't an Al-Anon. I, co- I, I realize that we made you. I understand that and all, you know. But
1: <laughs> the, uh, I, uh,
0: yeah, you know, uh, Geraldine had had a problem getting Henry sober, and she just she tried everything and it didn't work. So she was leaving church one Sunday morning, and of course Henry was home drunk. And she noticed a notice on the bulletin board that said uh, Al-Anon for Friends and Family of the Alcoholic, Tuesday night. By God, she says, I'm going to go there. So sure enough, Tuesday night, Geraldine showed up to the Al-Anon meeting. And they discussed something, of course, most of which went over her head. And as she was leaving, she pulled one of the gals aside and she says, how did you get your husband sober? She says, I just told him Mother was coming home to live with us if he didn't sober up. <laughs> and, She says, you might try that. And she says, it won't work. He chased Mother off years ago. She won't come near the place. Said, well, I don't know what you might do. Some kind of fear, maybe. I I really don't know, but that worked for me. So on her way home, she passed a costume shop. And there they had a big devil in the window, all dressed up, you know, with all the proper costume and the horns and everything. She said, "My God, that's it. So she went in there and she rented the devils. Outfit. And she took it home, and on Friday night she put it on and she laid out there in the bushes beside the sidewalk, you know. And sure enough, here comes old Henry. He's been down there at the local tavern slopping up them pickled pigs' feet, sausages, and peanuts and popcorn, and washing it down with about a gallon of beer, so he's making a lot of animal noises and strolling them. <laughs> Strolling along the street there, sort of singing to himself, and she jumps out, and like that, you know, and he says, who in the hell are you? She says, I'm the devil. She says, put her there, partner. I've been wanting to meet you ever since I married your sister. <laughs> now, now. Christian, you really shouldn't make fun of Al-Anon. They are. They're beautiful. And I want you to know that I really and truly do love you, and I support you. I, I never sponsor anybody that I don't recommend that the spouse attend Al-Anon right away, right away. It's, it's just a better recovery program when that's working together, and I'm, I'm really a supporter. In fact, I spoke at the last uh, Florida State Al-Anon Convention, and if you think that I don't take some guts, why? <laughs> and it's... As Francine mentioned last night, it's perception. I swear there was 8,000 Alanons in that room. It looked like it. But I'd, I'd, I really believe that you, uh, we wouldn't be near where we're at today, if at all, if it hadn't been for you. And I certainly do admire you. And I think we ought to give you a lot more support than we sometimes do in the groups. Thank you. <laughs> I guess I better go and get drunk right quick, like here. Uh, I uh, don't—I really don't care what time it is, you know. I just want y'all to know I got a (laughs) watch. Because when I come here, I didn't have one, and that's a dress watch. Now, (laughs) now, it don't mean a lot to some people, but to a country boy, it does. Because when I was coming up, you know, you had these watches you could buy on almost any store or drugstore. They sit on a card on a counter, and you could get one of them for a dollar, Ingersoll or something like that. And you put a little leather strap on them, tied them in bib overalls, and put them in that pocket. It was called a dollar watch, and that's what it was. And if you had one of these, you had a dress watch. And boy, that was really impressive. But you only wore that when you're going out on Friday or Saturday night or Sunday morning, maybe to church. So I got a dress watch now. I also got one of them others, too, yeah. Bought it not too long ago. So, uh, anyhow, I want you to know that there might be some confusion in the things that I say for this reason. I'm a product of not only Alcoholics Anonymous, of course, but of uh, two mentors, spiritual advisors, you can call them what you want to. One of them is Charlie Lindenwood, the Arkansas traveler, uh, who will have 50 years in May. And the other one who had a very great influence on me and gave me my first year chip was Clarence Snyder, member number 40, and has a story in the big book, The Home Brewmeister, still in there. So uh, I say there's some conflict in, in my, uh, that you might hear from me because I, I got a lot from those two sources. And believe me, those two sources are not close together. <laughs> Never were they close together. But, uh, again, I better go on and get drunk here and, and get this thing over with. Uh, I was raised in a little town in Lexington, Kentucky, just poor people, uh, but honest. You know, that's the way everybody was poor then. I didn't know I was poor, to tell you the truth, because everybody was the same, you know. And when the kids got out on the street at night and they said, what would you have for supper? One of them say, taters. And uh, that's what he meant, taters. He didn't say, taters and. know, uh, It was taters. It's like in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous today, you know. I hear somebody say, and this, and and that, and I often think of that. Incidentally, if you ever introduce yourself to me, please just say, my name's John, and I'm an alcoholic, because I know how to deal with that. I'm I'm a funny person. I really am. Strange is probably a better word. Uh, Because when you say, my name's John, and I'm an alcoholic, that goes right to me and I made an immediate connection with you, I know that you've been to that place of loneliness and despair that I've been to. I know you've been to that place of broken dreams and empty hopes that I've been to, and you don't need to say any more. I feel for you right then. Add something to that, and this or and that, and immediately this thing of mine says, I wonder who I'm talking to. Am I talking to Dan? You know." And there's a little division now. And it's always going to be there. You can say, "Well, you know, you're biased and ignorant and prejudiced and all this." Maybe I am. I don't know, but that's what happens to me. I sponsor a boy down in Orlando, and if he goes to a meeting and anybody does an and on him, when he comes to his turn, he says, "My name's Leon, and I drive a Cadillac." <laughs> Makes just about as much sense. There's one hundred and what forty-seven outfits now using these twelve steps. And God love 'em. them. We want them to have them. We've willingly given them these things to help them out. And we wish they would. And we can contribute a great deal to those outfits by directing them, if you will, to their proper place of recovery and help them grow as, as we have had to grow over the years and experience this thing. So uh, anyhow, back to Anda and potatoes. And I, I was a very poor student. So, and always sort of tall and gawky for my age. And why was I a poor student? Naturally, I wouldn't asked questions. Would you please help me? I don't understand. You know, alcoholics don't have questions like that in there. <laughs> so anyhow, uh, uh, at about 15, they said, you might as well take him out of school. He's not doing any good. Uh, maybe he can go to work and make a couple of dollars and make some financial contribution to this family that was so destitute. And uh, so I lived right close to the gentry stockyard there in Lexington at that time. And uh, so I found me a job up there at the stockyard. I never had worked around any stock before. It's uh, wintertime in Kentucky, cold and miserable as it can get there. And I'm in, in, not properly shod, if you will, or clothed for that kind of work. And them hogs, you know, they, they are all right. As long as there's home on the place, they got one little corner they usually go to and all that sort of thing and take care of themselves. But when you get them out in the market like that, and a whole bunch of them, everybody's whistling, beating them with canes and everything, they do some strange things in strange places. They don't give a darn at that particular time. And there I was, standing in that awful stuff, you know, and and, uh, scared to death. I didn't know what to do with that. I scared them hogs. I was cold. I was just absolutely miserable and this old farmer came over there and he reached down in them bib overalls and he pulled out a half pint of liquor and he says here boy he says you take yourself a drink of this and you'll be alright and I did and Lord God did he tell the truth (laughs) Lord God did he tell the truth because that drink did for me just exactly what a drink's supposed to do for an alcoholic it went to every part of my body and did everything it was supposed to do because right away I wasn't afraid anymore, so I took that cane and just knocked the hell out of the next hog that come by just to show him I'd do it. It didn't make any difference what I was standing in anymore. I didn't care. And I got warm. Got warm. I had ten cents in my pocket, and it became ten dollars. And I got prettier. Right there on that hog scales in Lexington, Kentucky, and my golden moment was born. The golden moment that I was to chase for the next 25 or 30 years of my life. Always trying to recapture that moment, knowing full well now that it was an illusion. But I always wanted to recapture that moment when I really didn't care where I was at. Where 10 cents became $10 and I was warm and I wasn't filled with fear. Always trying to recapture it, but never able to. But from that moment on, any time that golden moment came to my mind, I was destined to drink it dictated my life from that moment on. Don't tell me about circumstances and situations. Be damned. That was the most important thing in my life after that. And that quick, too. I changed jobs after that. I went to work in the bakery. The pay wasn't much better, but the smell was. <laughs> uh, incidentally, I'm a periodic alcoholic, and the reason I say that, I was down to Tri-City. One time, and I mentioned the fact that I was a a periodic, and I sort of followed it up a little bit about what a periodic is. And after it was over, you always go to speak to one person, you know, at one of these fairs. There's always one of you I'm talking to. I don't know who it is, but there's one of you out there. And uh, sure enough, I was talking to a group of people after this thing was over, and I turned and looked, and there was a little girl standing there, I bet she wasn't 18 years old, and tears were streaming down her face. And I said, you're the person I came to talk to. Yeah, she was a periodic, and nobody's ever told her in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. She's as much alcoholic as anybody else. And the big book describes us. It says we're those people that can go without drink for a while and then think we can return to it with impunity. My friend Clarence Snyder says we're the ones that give drinking a bad name because we're binge drinkers and we do more damage on a weekend than the old continuous drunk did in 30 years. (laughs) We're also more insane. For that very reason, we know what it is to be without alcohol. We know what it is to put it together again, get the job again, get the kids the shoes again, have some money in the bank, have the car running again, and have her hopes all build up again. Even the dog's happy at this time. Everybody's happy, except, and I'm like the boy whistling in the dark. I'd give anything for a drink, and I'm destined to do it again. I know this much about alcoholics in my years of working with them in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. One, you must get them by any period that they ever stayed sober on their own, regardless of how long that period was. And two, they'll stay sober as long as they can, and then they'll drink as long as they can. And that's what I know about periodic alcoholics. But if you're periodic, don't worry about it. If you consider yourself an alcoholic, you fit well within the description, pages 21 through 25, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So that's the kind of a drunk I am. This poor family that I came from, incidentally, there was only one person in that family I had any concern or regard for at all, and that was my grandmother, Gus. She was uh, a beautiful lady uh, and doubtful that I would even be here if it hadn't been for Gus. She was the only stabilizing force if there was one in my life, and she remained one throughout my life. My mother lived in the same city, but... There wasn't really any closeness there. It was only Gus that I thought anything of. If there could be a love, I know this now, that I didn't know at that time. I probably had as much love as I could for Gus, but not in the real sense, because once you're addicted, the love goes to the addiction. And that's the way I was. I loved the booze, of course, more than Gus. But uh, Gus is actually the the only person that I I really cared for. And... uh, (laughs) You know, uh, Charlie and I have talked about this many times. You and I, uh, have to answer to the laws and all the edicts of the church and the laws of the land and all that. But we also established some laws for ourselves. Things we're never going to do. Was never going to steal. Was never, you know, because I was brought up right. You know, poor, but right. Uh, and that sort of thing. But anyhow, these laws were important to us. And you've all got these. We've all established some kind of rule for ourselves, or law, call it what you want to. But alcohol, little by little, eats these things away until pretty soon they're no longer of any significance. They're not an asset or a value anymore. And that's the way it was for me. And the first time I went to jail, I was 15, 16 years old, drunk, stole a Christmas tree. I don't know what I could do with it. We didn't have a room big enough to put the damn thing in. But the... And I got thrown in jail. And in those years, they put your name in the paper and what you did and everything. I don't care how old you was. You broke the law. Your name was under the police thing there. And they wrote up a pretty good paragraph about me. And my mother got me out the next day for some reason. I don't know. But anyhow, that wasn't my concern. The degradation and humiliation I'd heaped upon Gus was, though. God, I felt terrible about that. I just, if there's anything I didn't want to do, it was go home and face Gus that morning, you know. That I'd hurt her so much because I knew she'd be going to the market or church or something like that and people would be saying grandson was drunk last night stole a Christmas tree oh I just felt terrible about that God I just if there was anything I wanted to make right again it was that but see me after I've been in 15 or 20 jails where were you last night Oakley's in the slammer you see it didn't make any difference anymore and that's the way alcohol did these other things just little by little it ate at them until it pretty soon it didn't have them anymore and I think the final thing, I believe, the final thing that alcohol takes is our dreams. And when you've been robbed of your dreams, you ain't got nothing left. I went into World War II right here in Atterbury, Indiana, because it was the right thing to do, those of you who are old enough to remember that, and there's a few of us around. Uh, if you had two arms and two legs and two eyes, why you went in the military. And I had two of them, a blind and one eye. I've been that way all my life, but uh, they, I went in anyhow, uh, went into the Army. And, uh, you know, the war ended there very shortly. So uh, it wasn't about a year, year and a half later, they offered us the opportunity to get out, a bunch of us. Of course, the High Point men had already been brought back from Europe at that particular time. And so they started cleaning out the stateside. They didn't need us. And so uh, they asked me if I wanted to get out, and I told them I did, because I learned one thing in the Army. I didn't want to be all I could be. Uh... (laughs) in the next five years, I experienced most of the major skids on the East Coast. And most of the jails, too, I might add. I knew how to make a pink lady and a green lizard. I knew how to panhandle. I knew how to sing for your supper in the missions. I knew how to make a nest. I knew all, all of that that goes with that kind of street living and wine drinking and all that sort of thing, you know. And it only took five years. Every now and then I would come home to this Gus. I'd be just so beat up and just so worn out I just couldn't make it anymore and so sick and have absolutely no place to go. And I'd come home and Gus would straighten me out, you know, and the room was always the way I'd left it when I was a teenager. That room remained the same. And she'd get me all cleaned up and she'd iron me a fresh shirt and all that sort of thing, you know, and she'd put two dollars in my pocket. Say, Billy, be a good boy. I knew what Gus meant. I knew full well what Gus meant. But I couldn't do it. I'd come home at night all bloodied, my shirt ripped off of me, you know, and a mess, you know. And I could see the tears in Gus's eyes then, too, you know. And I continued to do that. I'm sleeping in a car in Detroit, and I don't know how long I've been there. I don't know when I've washed or eaten or anything else last. And I look out. It's sort of cold. I think it's November or something. I don't know. It's plenty cold enough. Of course, it's cold enough in Detroit any time. But... I saw a sign that says, Uncle Sam wanted you. And I remember seeing the headlines, something about the Korean thing getting ready to kick in. And so I got uh, real patriotic. And I said, that's what I need. I need to go back in the military. Of course, since then, I realized patriotism didn't have a damn thing to do with it. I wanted a place where I could eat, sleep, get a little money, and somebody put up with my kind of behavior. <laughs> the only thing is, I took that golden moment into the military with me. I went into the Air Force that time. And you can space the golden moment. Don't tell me that there's a war going on. That hadn't got anything to do with it. You can space the golden moment by the fact that I made 11 stripes during the Korean War and kept four of them. So you see, every time the golden moment came on, I'd get drunk, the old man would bust me. I'd get sober, they'd give me a promotion back because I could do the work. I was a good worker when I was sober. You've often heard that. Boy, he's the best worker we've got when he's here. When he's here. And that's the way I was. I'm 27 years old. I just returned from Korea. And uh, the committee's working up here, you know. And they're saying, uh, Bill, you know you ought to do this. No, you ought to do this and this. Finally got over on this side, and this side says, maybe you ought to get married. (laughs) Why in God's name an alcoholic thinks marriage is going to be the answer to his alcohol problem, I don't know. Unless, of course, it's sex. I can't think of it. So, marriage through sex or sobriety through sex or something like that. I can't think of any other reason. Anyhow, I found a little girl down there in Kentucky, and she had two wee children, and uh, we got married. And the golden moment didn't bother me for about a year or a year and a half. They moved out to Moses Hole, Washington. It might have been the newness of the marriage uh, or coming back to the States. I don't know what it really was. But anyhow, nothing seemed to really get bad. There wasn't any real... Real golden moments, if you will. But that tour was over, and I was offered an opportunity to transfer to Miami, Florida, on 36th Street, and it was a stabilized tour of three years, and uh, I took it. There's only 216 of us down there, and every one of them down there was a full blown alcoholic, including the commander. And the day I met him. He had on a crushed hat way over the side of his head. He had command ribbons from here to here and Argyle socks. (laughs) And, And he told me how he wanted to run that country club of the Air Force and that I was not to screw it up. And I assured him that I would not. And I tried hard not to. We only had to work two days a month down there. We trained Reservists, that flamingo wing they have down there. It was a big one at that time, it had about 1,500 men in it. But anyhow, our job was to train those men. And so on a training weekend, you had to be at duty. It was imperative that you be at duty on that training weekend. Every man knew that. Every man knew that. didn't make any difference what you did the other uh, rest of the days of the month. But on a training weekend, by God, you was there. Unless, of course, you had an emergency. And so one night that golden moment came on. And, of course, the committee says, ah, somebody will cover for you. You don't need to go out there. You know, you can go in late. No. Tell them you had a flat. I took a bus for that drink. Failure to repair was the charge, which means I just didn't show up. And it cost me $55 a month for six years for that one drink of alcohol. But, you see, that drink was more important and that money that that family needed so bad. And incidentally, that family had moved down there by then, and I had to take an extra job, of course, tending bar. <laughs> I'll show you some of my insanities right quick, like selfishness and the self-centeredness and the absolute need, and why I think there can't be any love as long as you're into the addiction itself. As I was sleeping on a bunk up there in the barracks one night, or one morning rather. And uh, one of the kids came up, and he says, Sergeant, uh, your wife's downstairs, and she'd like to see you. I said, okay. And I rolled off. I was in my wardrobe, of course. And uh went down there, and it was perfectly obvious what was going on. This car was leveled with baggage and children. There had been a daughter born to that union. She'd stayed in Georgetown, Kentucky, until that had happened, and then had moved down there. So it was perfectly obvious what was going on. And this lovely lady looked out that window at me, with that look that's reserved for alcoholics. And you know the look I'm talking about. (laughs) She had it. And she says, Bill, we're going home to mother. And that golden moment came on. And of course the club was only here to the back of the room. And I says, well, have a good trip. And I turned and walked to the club to answer the demands of that golden moment. At that particular time, there wasn't one thought in me about some kind of reconciliation Can we do something about this thing? Do you have enough money? Is the car running all right? Not one thought about it. Have a nice trip. And I went to answer the demands of that golden moment. The good thing about the military, it always provided me with that opportunity to start anew. And sure enough, the tour was over in Miami. And uh, I somehow got assigned to security service. High risk outfit, and I don't know how that happened. either. You're right. And uh, on the Isle of Crete, which is about 180 miles off the coast of Athens. And uh, so I get the airplane in South Carolina, but it sits down in Bermuda for some reason. they had a small problem, and they told us not to leave the vicinity to get away far enough to smoke, but to stay there. And we're going to board again in a few minutes, and uh, going into the Azores. And that golden moment came on. And I saw that sign up there, it said NCO. So I walked right on up there, just like I was assigned to the outfit, and went in. And about 45 minutes later, I saw the airplane, wheels up, and I stayed in Bermuda a few days and ran in some old friends. (laughs) Then it was the Azores. Then it was three countries in North Africa. Then it was Sicily, Rome. And finally one night, in a pouring down rain, I'm standing with a bunch of GIs. I don't know or recognize any of them. And I heard one of them say Athens. I said, God knows. Drunk, I would not go to Athens, Georgia. (laughs) And this voice says, sorry, you don't have to worry about it. You're in Greece. (laughs) Incidentally, I'm an an international puker. I've puked in 27 countries of the world. (laughs) Tell that to your church group, boy. Only place on earth is a bunch of people to laugh at some sick thing like that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, I arrived out at the island the next day with the opportunity to start anew. And the old man called me in, and he had taken a very dim view of the fact that I'd taken 18 days to get from the States to Crete. Here's an amazing thing about the periodic alcoholic, and here's a, a reason. A, that you should never try to explain your alcoholism to somebody that ain't got it. It'll drive you crazy. Don't try to. If they ain't got it, they're not going to understand it. Not that we understand it, we just know a little more about it. That's why you laugh when I say certain things. You've experienced these things and all, you know. For the next 18 months, and with an additional duty to run the NCO club, I didn't touch a drop. The golden moment didn't come on. I ran the club, I made the extra money, I rode every night home, I sent all my money home. In fact, I sent extra money home because I was earning extra money. I remembered all the birthdays, even my mother-in-law's. And you can see in her letters, the first 30 or 40 days or 60 days or whatever it was, there wasn't a lot going on, you know. Her thoughts being, I would imagine, he's done this before. But then it was three months. Then it was six months. Now you can see the change in the letters. My God, maybe this is the time. Maybe this is the time, and finally it was a year, and my the letters changed completely now, I'm making plans for my return and all this sort of thing you know, and finally, it was eighteen months because that was a unaccompanied tour for me and uh, she's she 's elated now in these letters and all it just sound, everything sounds so good, and so sure enough, I went back to Georgetown, Kentucky and I didn't think I had done any golden moment drinking. I really didn't think that I had. But 27 days later, I'm in straps at Shaw Air Force Base, South Carolina, and they kept me in straps for nine days in a wheelchair for two weeks and another 30 days before they could get me back to duty. And I was baffled by this. I could not understand it. I'd been working out on the beach. I'd been eating right, sleeping right for 18 months. I hadn't been drinking except that short period at home. I couldn't understand how I got in that shape so quick. I'd been in straps before, but I just couldn't understand it. I had to come to a room full of drunks to find out. The disease progresses in me whether I drink the damn stuff or not. And I believe that. Oh, I believe that. I believe if I went out here to take a drink right now, I'd be in jail by 10 o'clock. I don't have any problem with that. It progresses in me whether Of course, in the meantime, Gus is delighted... Because she thinks when this baby's born, to so many of us fall into that trap. He'll straighten out now, you know. She was just so happy she had a, uh, a granddaughter now, and, and oh, a great granddaughter uh, now. And she was just delighted with this, and I thought, well, at least I've done something good for Gus. Because all this time, you know, we're funny. I'd say, well, you know, pay day. I'm get Gus a card and put ten dollars in it. And I see it again, and I, say, okay, I, you know, pay day. I wanna do that. And pretty soon payday would come and go. And I wouldn't get the card and I wouldn't send it to him. But then the next thought would be, well, I meant to. And pretty soon I satisfy myself with a lie. Yeah, I satisfy myself. I did that many times in life. I don't think I ever sent Gus a Christmas card for as much as that old lady did to me. Let me tell you how I repaid her for her kindness. While I was in Miami, Gus died. Then I was drunk. And the first sergeant and sergeant major knew where to find me because we all drank in the same bars. So they put through a loan right quick for me, bought me an airplane ticket and rounded me up, drove me back out to the place, threw me in a shower, took me down to the airport and put me on a plane. I was to be a pallbearer along with my brother and a couple of cousins. And I was so drunk for that funeral they had to put me behind a curtain where they couldn't nobody see me. That's how I repaid that kind old lady, that lady that loved me so much. That's how I repaid her kindness. God knows. Do you think I wanted to do that? And that brings to bottom, uh, brings to mind for me bottom, which is something I I hear so much of I get sick of. High bottoms, low bottoms, skinny bottoms, fat bottoms, pretty bottoms. (laughs) We had a speaker down not too long ago who says everybody's got a Lady Kenmore box. Everybody's got a Lady Kenmore box, and I believe that. And it doesn't have to be under the bridge. In fact, Nickel Street is not where most of us come from. No. That isn't bottom. Nickel Street has never been bottom. For very few, less than 1% of us come from, from Nickel Street. But we all have that Lady Kenmore box, and we do have a bottom. And that bottom is that place. Where you know you've divorced yourself from man and God you know, and you're so sick of yourself you can't even look in the mirror in the morning you have to walk by in a hurry you don't even want to see yourself for the kind of person you become and you've hurt those people you love so much that you just can't stand it you said, God I can't hurt them again I don't want to hurt them again yet you, you do again and again and again and you've been robbed of your dreams that's bottom ladies and gentlemen and it ain't got nothing to do with Nickel Street, nothing in the world. Your lady came more might be in a $500 condominium. Or it might be like mine in a double-wide mobile home down in Florida. But that's bottom. So there, the opportunities, of course, kept happening to me in the military to get this started anew. The wife, she did come back, and we did settle again. Uh, I'm in serious trouble with the military, and the only way to get out of it is to go to NAM. So I volunteered for NAM, there's some more of my insanities. And uh, got drunk over there, and he put me in a funny palace. Right, quick light. that was a bad funny palace to be in that's the worst one I've ever been in because some of them kids were scared over there and they had reason to be I was just drunk you know just drunk but anyhow I finished that tour and I came back to the states I'm ready for retirement I only got a few months to do now and I uh, am ready to even give them my medical history that's how short I am and the old man called me in because the golden moment's been staying with me now I can't get rid of it I'm a wine drinker, drinking at two o'clock in the morning, and you know three o'clock when you wake up. You need any of them, you drank wine? You know what I'm talking about. You got to have a drink every five minutes, and when you puke, you get to cut it with scissors. Huh? That—that's uh, the kind of drunk I'm on. I can't get off of it. And I come to work one morning, and uh, the kid says the old man wants to see you. I knew this colonel. I'd worked for him before. One thing about him, he'd do exactly what he told you was going to do. He was a good man to work for for that reason. He didn't pussyfoot around with anything, and what he told you, by God, you could make book on. So anyhow, I went in there and threw him a rather shaky highball, and uh, he started chewing me out about my condition. I thought he was talking about that morning. He was talking about the morning before. And uh, he proceeded to do that for five or ten minutes, and he told me he was well aware of how short I was for retirement. And his parting shot went something like this. Sergeant Oakley, I want you to go back down there and run that outfit of yours like a sergeant of the United States Air Force until the very day you're relieved of duty. And if you don't, I will jerk those stripes off of your arm and kick you out of this man's Air Force. Do you understand me? I said, yes, Colonel. And I threw him another highball. ball. And as they're going out through his secretary's office, office, which was right adjacent to his, that golden moment came on. And I went straight to a bar like that man hadn't even spoke to me. I knew full well the consequences of that. But you see, that golden moment was more important than what that colonel had to say. Those 19 years and eight or whatever it was, I was willing to sacrifice at that time for that golden moment. I made it out with 20 years and 12 days. And if they needed another 30 days, I couldn't have given it to them. I'd have never made it. I came down to Florida, went into one of my periods of self-imposed sobriety, if you will, and put a little job together and one thing another, put a little money in the bank, which is, again, the way periodics work. You know, we can put it all together. We're good at putting it back together. And jobs, they don't bother us. We can quit them just that quick when that golden moment comes on, and we'll go get another one just that quick, too. You ask a periodic what he's done? Everything. That's right. He has. I've been a coal miner, a bartender, a lifeguard. You name it. I've done it at one time or another because the golden moment is dictated by it. So I put it together a little bit down there, and I'm doing real well. I'm proud of myself. patting myself on the back, you know. There's three things you need to always remember about an alcoholic, and I don't care who he is, remember these three things. One, he wants to be rewarded for not robbing the bank. Huh? <laughs> Two, he's the best at the world at mind reading and fortune telling. If you think not, get in a ninth-step meeting sometime and see. And the third one is, he always wants to start from where he ain't. Always wants to start from where he ain't. I don't know, I was in this place and the conversation went something like this. Like I say, I was patting myself on the back about a good job I was doing. And so I stopped and I had a beer. And that's all I drank. The bartender said, want another one? I said, oh, no, I wanted everybody in that damn bar to hear me say no. Didn't know a soul in there, I don't know why. But I wanted everybody to know I wasn't going to have another drink. I went home that night, and next morning I patted myself on, boy, you're doing good. See, you drank last, you got the answer to this darn thing. You drank last night, got up this morning, feeling good and all this sort of thing. And then the conversation after a day or so went something like, I like shooting pool with these old boys. I can sit next door and get some chicken to eat. I don't have to fix no supper tonight. I've already done the laundry, and the landlord's been paid. I don't know how long that drunk lasted. The only thing I'm for sure of in that drunk is I'm standing downtown Orlando, 9:30, 10 o'clock in the morning, and I'm on one of the main cross sections, either central or pine, but right in the heart of the city. And I can't get off of the curb. Tears are streaming down my eyes. Because for the love of God, I could not tell you how to get off of that curb. I didn't know whether to step down, up, the light was going to turn purple, a parachute was going to drop, a helicopter was going to come by. I did not know. I could not get off of the curb. Completely immobilized by the fear and paranoia borrowed by extreme alcoholism. And I wake up in a jail. And here's where my life had taken me. I finally, the guy says, you know how long you've been here? And I says, I thought it would just been there a day or so at the most. He says, you've been here five days. Five-day blackout. And after I got to thinking about it, I was glad. I didn't laugh or anything about that. I was really happy that I hadn't been out on the streets where I could do something. We were talking about it this the other day. There's a doctor down in Texas that flew a plane from Texas into Oklahoma and landed. Don't know nothing about it. Another one performed a sectional C-sectional. Don't know a thing about it blackout drinker if you're a blackout drinker don't worry about what you is you is five days out of my life just gone and I was glad to have been in jail not a hell of a place to end up life. beautiful thing happened to me though the committee for one time didn't seem to get together but there was a voice And it said something like this, For God's sakes, Bill Oakley, quit telling yourself you can drink alcohol. You cannot drink it. It don't make any difference what form it comes in, what kind it is, what color it is, whether it's beer or wine or anything else. When you drink alcohol, you get in trouble, period. For God's sakes, quit telling yourself that. I had that moment of truth. And I said, God help me. I never want to be like this again in my life. I don't care what goes down. I do not want to be like this again in my life. And some guy walked up to the jail cell. 16. I was in the tank there. And he didn't look at any of them. He just looked at me. He says, hey, boy, you want to do something about your drinking? And I reiterated that prayer silently. I said, God help me. I never do want to be like this again. I'll do anything, but I don't want to be like this again. And I had that moment of truth. And I said, yes, sir, I do. Now, I believe until that happens to an alcoholic, he's getting a nothing sandwich. And we've got plenty of people in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous with a nothing sandwich, believe me. But once he comes to that place, it don't have to be those exact words, but it has to be in that context. It has to be deep down where I live is where it's got to come from. Once that happens, then this whole spiritual program opens up to him. And I believe it has to happen that way. But see, something else happened that time, too. At that immediate time. The book says if, he's believe, if he believes or he's willing to believe, we emphatically ensure him he's on his way. And the next thing that happened to me, I know now, is that I had a second golden moment born that was more powerful than that first one will ever think of being. And the other thing was that happened at that time, and I know it as well as I'm standing here, Gus smiled. Gus smiled. Gus didn't cry anymore. Gus smiled At that time in Orlando, Florida, in that jail, when I said, God help me. I don't want to be like this anymore. Because she knew and he knew that I was sincere. For the one time in my life, I was absolutely sincere. Strange thing about that man that came and talked to me. He was an atheist. But he brought me a message of hope. He brought me the message of hope. And that's one thing I'm very upset with in the rooms. And I get upset, especially in my home group, where I wheel the whip a little bit. We act like we're afraid to talk to a drunk anymore. God knows. My sponsor was a 30-year infantry retired colonel. And he stood ramrod straight, had on the black shoes and everything. The only thing he did, he took the uniform part of it off. Had the crew cut and all that. And he told me one time, he says, go around and put, that, put your arm around that drunk and tell him you love him. I says, he stinks. He says, you didn't?
1: <laughs>
0: we do. I don't know what these drunks are going to We, we actually, there seems like there's some kind of fear, phobia or something. afraid of drunks or something. When I talk to another drunk and in and, and sincere to, to help him, not being the savior, but just trying to help the guy, or someone help me, then I'm about my father's business. I don't have to worry about a lot of things. I just ask him to help me. And I go about it. We all, every one of us, the beautiful young lady that read today, she's got a little voice now. In fact, she's got a tremendous one to start with. (laughs) But she's got a little voice. If she's somebody with a day. He says, well, I found out that I like this. These people are all nice to me. They made me welcome. I feel good here. They seem to have something. Every one of us has something to offer, and I really don't care about the longevity. We all have that little voice. Like this guy was robbing a safe. He had one of them little old pen lights, you know, and he was working away at it and heard a little voice say, Jesus sees you. Oh. Didn't see anything, hearing things. Went back to work on the safe, you know. And the little boy says, Jesus doesn't like what you're doing. So he extended his arm and get the light out a little further. Still didn't see anything. So he went back to work on the safe. And the little boy says, Jesus will punish you. that's it. So he stopped and he walked all the way around the room. And finally got over here in the corner. And there was a little green bird sitting on a perch. He says, oh, what could a little old green bird do? But as his light fell away, there was a huge Doberman with his teeth flared and his ears laid back, and a little voice says, Sick of Jesus! have that little voice. You have that little voice. Sick of Jesus. But I got a sponsor. I say I got one. I really don't know. I think what happened is a couple of them got over a corner and flipped, and Ed and lost. That's how he got me. And I did the usual things. I told the usual lies and all that sort of thing. And Ed was one of these kind of sponsors always telling me what I didn't know, you know. He said, if you don't take a drink, you can't get drunk. I said, I know that. He said, no, you don't. I never knew so many things I didn't know that I did know, you know. But uh, he was good. Marvin and I came into a wino group, the place he's talking about. And I mean winos. It wasn't up to see something on the floor there that came out of somebody. And it didn't make much difference which end it was down there, to tell you the truth. But the first meeting I went to, I made 365 meetings the first year I was in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I do not believe in this business of 90 meetings in 90 days I hear. I don't know where it came from. I cannot find it in the literature of Alcoholics Anonymous. I made those meetings because I didn't have any place else to go or nobody else to go with. So that's all right. But if you're cher- if you're sponsoring somebody and he's got a wife and kids at home, I don't care whether he's trying to get 90 meetings in just so he can boast about getting 90 meetings in. I'd rather see him get three meetings in and tell me something he learned and spend some time with his family for a change. So so that's... uh, But anyhow, uh, Ed was working with me, and he he was a good man. Uh, About the second meeting I came into, I was late. Got that number. That's that's just the opposite of the Al-Anon handshake. Uh, (laughs) Anyhow, I got that number. And he called me over and he says, uh, what are you doing late? I said, there's only two buses that run down there. I didn't have any transportation. I had to ride a bus to town. And he says, you catch an earlier bus. You don't come into a meeting late. So I never came into another meeting late. I came in one time, and he says, Did you bathe? I said, Well, no. He says, Why not? He says, Don't you ever come in here like that again? I used some profanity one time. And he says, What the hell was that all about? I says, Ed, I was just telling it like it is. He says, You was telling it like it was. If it's like that now, buddy, you're in the wrong place. So I don't use any profanity today. I better wrap this thing up right quick. I, uh, was, this group that we came into, it was real weird. We had some real weird people. I was thinking about this because a postman called me the other day had transferred out to California. And in my group, we give, uh, and the people I sponsor, I always give them a silver dollar and drill a hole in it. And each year they bring me the dollar back and I drill another hole in it. And this guy was coming in back from California and... Uh, uh, he called me and hadn't had a hole drilled in his daughter for a couple of years and wanted me to drill it, of course, was the one that gave it to him. And he had 10 or 11 years now, or 12, whatever. His name was P on your porch Timmy. Yeah. Yeah. He was a mailman. And, we had and when he had a special delivery and you weren't home, it was on your porch. <laughs> We had a professor there that had taught math at the University of Alabama and the University of Kentucky. The guy that was sort of the housekeeper of the place, no, he wasn't the janitor, but he sort of stayed around the place, he lived there, Bill, he was a Harvard grad. And so I had those kind of people to influence me too. I'm so glad that I came into the kind of group that I came into. I wouldn't make it in some of today's group where the chairman gets up and says when he wants to open the meeting. Does anybody have a problem?
1: <laughs>
0: and he's got the big book in front of him. I can't understand that. Sure enough, here he goes. This happened to me recently. Big kid. Says, yeah, I, guess I, I wore an earring last night, and my ex-girlfriend... Do you know they started talking about wearing an earring? Now, if you'd had a fresh drunk with you at that particular, what in God's name? what the hell do you bring me here for? I don't need to talk about earrings. I need to get my family back together in one thing or another. I can assure you in my groups and the groups of my groups, the groups that I attend on a regular basis, especially in my home group, which is by the book that's You'll only find the chairman sit up there, and he flips open the book, and he says, this has been meaningful in my recovery. And he'll read a paragraph or two or whatever it takes. And he says, this is why it was meaningful in my recovery, and this is the way my sponsor and I worked on it, and so forth and so on. And then we discuss that. We don't ask if you've got a problem. We know you've got problems. And the big book of alcoholics and I. The other thing says, I came in the rooms and just dumped it. Find it for me in the book. Well, your term changed my mind. It's not in the book. The book says if you're in trouble, go get your drunk to work with. And some awful things are dumped in the rooms that don't belong in the rooms that need to talk over with a sponsor. God knows.
1: <laughs>
0: the. uh Yeah, there's an awful lot of... The, the biggest half measure in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous today is don't drink and go to meetings. Again, it's not in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That, that's good for about one day. That's what that's good for. We're not about that. We're about recovery. My friend Clarence Snyder would take you through the steps in two days, and I'll give you two weeks because that's the way they're laid out in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the only way I know to do it, folks. So I would have a problem in in some of these groups today, and I'm glad for that old group we have, because this old man from Harvard called me over and said, Come here, dummy. And I thought, Oh, hell, here we go again. He says, I know what your problem is. Everybody knew what my problem was. You know, everybody in that group knew what my problem was. And the tragic part about it is that we're right. But he called me over and he says, I know what your problem is. You're thinking that these terms that we use in their absolute sense, you know, absolute love, patience, tolerance, and all that. That was too heavy for me to handle. You don't lose, use terms like that in the jails and under the bridges and all. Uh, he said, well, well, let me show you something. He said, we bring you in here and try to acquaint you with these words and tell you what they mean and that sort of thing. And then you're on a scale, and that scale's 1 to 10. And he says, that 10 over here, that's the absolute, absolute love, absolute honesty, absolute tolerance, absolute patience. And he says, that's for sainthood. He says, but over here, we get you started on the scale and get you going along. He says, some days you'll be a four, some days a six, always striving to be an absolute, knowing full well you're not going to make it because that's reserved for sainthood. And ladies and gentlemen, that's the way I ask you to work with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. This program is about one thing, reasonable expectations. If you don't remember anything else I said, please hold on to that. Reasonable expectations. You're on the scale. You're never going to reach sainthood. But by God, you can be striving each day. Some days you go back. I do. I get undrunk. Some days I'm just undrunk. You know? And I'm way back here at a two, and I have to start all over again. Some days I have three or four of those in a row, too. But the thing that I really wanted to talk about, and I'm using an a lot of your time, so, and I know you're anxious to get home. The, uh, the thing is what alcoholics is really and truly all about. And Francine hit on it a little bit last night. I wish you had talked some more on it because it's my favorite subject, and sometimes I don't talk on anything else. That's bring your dreams to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And don't listen to the dream killers. Bring your drunken dreams to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and then get with this dumb sponsor. Don't worry, all sponsors are dumb, so just get a dumb one to start with. But get a dumb one that's got a dumb one, because if you don't, you're listening to two damn fools. Get with this sponsor. Make a list of those things you want. Wish list, want list, you call it anything you like, I don't care Throw out the the perfectly obvious. You're not going to be the world's greatest lover or whatever it is. You want to be a wood carver? Good. Put it on a Cadillac, fur coat. I don't know. It's your list. Put it on there. (laughs) Make an honest application of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous for a year, and I guarantee you this is what's going to happen. You'll find out that you didn't need a Cadillac. You needed a pickup truck. There's... But probably the, most, the, the greatest thing about it all is you're going to find that you've been given much more than what's on the list. And I don't care what you put on that list. That's entirely up to you. Francine said you had to do something. Of course you do. Prayer is not a substitute for action. But these things will come about. I do not have a dream that hasn't been fulfilled in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I told you I was very poor, ill, literate. If there's anything I hated during my growing up years it was for you to ask me in my formal education. God, I hated that, because I had none. Of course, I'd lie a lot about it, but I had none. I read an awful lot and all that sort of thing. And this same old man, after I got sober, heard me bitching about uh, not having an education. Come here, dummy. I said, yeah, what do you want? He says, I want you to do something about the education thing, or shut up. Just like that. And I sang our national anthem. I says, but you don't understand.
1: <laughs>
0: and he says, what don't I understand? I says, I don't even have a high school c- certificate. He says, good, dummy, that's where you start. See, you want to start from where you ain't. <laughs> so I had to go down, and I got that certificate thing. I went out to the university. I wanted to be an art major. I have a, certif- I have a degree in art now took four years to get it. I thought I ought to get it a lot faster, but it didn't. It takes four years to get one. <laughs> I need six, 16, 18 hours for a degree in sociology. I don't want it, but the dream's been fulfilled. <clears throat> when I first came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I could not make eye contact with you, nor could I talk to you. Put my head down and mumble, you know. And so I had a sponsor, this colonel. He says, what do you do in the mornings? And I said, well, Ben and I go to breakfast. Ben was a drunk who got... Drunk on jury duty. And I read about him while I was in jail. So he's my partner when I get out. And uh, I said, well, Ben and I go to breakfast. He said, God, you talk to that idiot every morning? I said, yeah. He said, well, now and I want you to talk to somebody else and tell me who it is when you get in here. So I'd go in in the evening and he'd say, who do you talk to? I said, I talked to Ms. Harris. She's a bookkeeper for Sears. She's been there for 28 years. And the next day I'd come in and talk to him about somebody else that I met. I made myself, I had to talk to somebody. In 1975, Marvin and I were talking about this the other day, uh, there was three of us that were chairman of the Florida State Convention that year, and I ended up the voice on several occasions and was able to get up in front of about 1,500 people and read the messages or whatever it was. But the big thing was, and the way it helped me so much, in my other dream, I wanted to be an auctioneer. I am an auctioneer, but you see when I went to that school up there, one of the things was was to get in front of you and say something and go through the numbers without missing them and one thing and another, see? So I had all that training from AA. I got an awful lot of, of things that were given to me as a result of, of being in the program of alcoholics and numbers. So that dream's been fulfilled. I wanted to own an antique shop. Have owned, I don't know how many. own another one now, the biggest one we've ever had. Lost money in every damn one of them. <laughs> the dream's been fulfilled. When I was a little type, we they stole a tent or something stayed down on the Kentucky River one summer. And I never will forget it. We scavenged around, ate wild strawberries and used sassafras tea and all those sort of things. And I really liked it down there because at night it was so quiet and you could sit on that sand and you could see that water with the moon on it and it'd along as it was going down, you know. And it just washed me over it. It was the happiest time of my life. Nobody was hollering at me or beating on me or anything like that. And God, I thought, one of these days I'll have a house on the lake or a river or something, you know. Well, that's pretty hard to do when you're sucking on a wine jug. They just, people just don't want to sell your houses. You know? But anyhow, <laughs> Alverna and I was taking a, a, lady, a crippled lady to meetings with us, and uh, this one night when we picked her up, we happened to be discussing the fact we was going to loo- uh, move because the lady had sold the house we were living in. And uh, we were broke, which wasn't unusual. And uh, <laughs> we didn't know about moving. And so she said, well, why don't you see so-and-so? She wants to sell her house. And I said, well, I've just quick deeded the house out and reopened and I don't have any money or any credit in one way or another. There's winners and whiners in A.A. That's all there is. And I'll whine every now and then, and she'll be the winner, and then it'll turn around. But anyhow, she says, I'll go talk to her. And so I says, Al we don't have any money. We don't even have the down payment. We don't have anything, credit, blah, blah, blah. She says, I'll go talk to her. Well, of course, the lady wanted a few thousand dollars, which came from somewhere, I don't know, uh, She wanted to handle the paper herself. And where was the house? It was on a small lake. You don't think that God, in my understanding, would put me somewhere else, do you? No, the dream's been fulfilled. So bring your dreams to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you haven't got a dream, or if you believe the best has already happened, don't bother to pray tonight, because you ain't got nothing to pray about. If you, you're damn right. If you aren't satisfied with what you got, look who asked for it. And what makes you think you'd be happy with more of it? <laughs> so, it's, most of you, I've told, those of you I've talked to, I tell you, we live down in a place called Narcoosi, Florida, now, and uh, we moved down there in the last few months and uh, the last year or so. Uh, twelve and a half acres got a little barn on it and all that sort of thing and you say well don't that sort of break your dreams up well when you're married both of you have dreams and the farm place was her dream more than mine really but you see even there we got a little pond on there about as big as from here over to the wall so again I had my water to look at and calm myself down with and all that sort of thing so this has been a A real happy time for me. It's been a good time for me. Not always happy. uh, Not always good, if you will, but better than ever before. There's a lot of excitement in my life today. God's exciting. If there's a problem in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous today, we got little gods. Get a big one. Get a big one. He says in that other book, which isn't conference approved, that... uh, don't bring a thimble, bring a bucket. He'd just soon fill the bucket as he would the thimble. But that's what we do. We say, I hear it all the time. I believe, I believe in God. By God, I believe in God. I believe in God. I don't believe in the power of God, though. You're like me. I get filled with the Spirit, but I leak. <laughs> So this has been an exciting time. And, and get a God that's got a sense of humor. Please, get a God that... Really. I, we were working the show. Al Verner works most of the antique shows. I usually don't fool with them. But anyhow, we'd, she'd been working some shows, and we'd discontinued that operation. And I was going up to Mount Dora to sell a bunch of junk that we had that uh, just needed to be gotten rid of. And as I looked over in the corner that morning about 4 o'clock, I saw those crates that we used for the shows and they were painted so you could pack stuff in them and then set them out and display in them. And we didn't need them anymore. So I put them on the truck, and I looked up, and I said, I remember, I don't want to bring these damn things home. So sure enough, I put them on the truck, I drove the 30, 40 miles, 35 miles up to Mount Dora, got into my space, walked around the back of the truck to unload, and busted out laughing. The boxes had blew off on the way up there. I gotta tell you. So it has been an exciting time and God is exciting, you know. There's a lot of freedom in my life today. There's a richness in my life today and I don't have two quarters to rub together. There's a, looking forward to this new tomorrow. Something I was never able to do before. But do you know with all that richness, with all the freedom, the excitement of God, the love and the beauty, the friendships which are endless. I better remember one thing. They'll all be taken away with a single drink. Thank you.